Good morning, Door of Hope. Uh, Would you stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures? From Mark 15, verses 16 through 32. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right, well, we have a special guest with us today. This is Chris Nye. Give him a round of applause. Chris, uh, Chris and I go medium back. We met like eight years ago or something, yeah. briefly, through Luke and Rachel, who were leading worship. Y'all go way back, go way back. very far back. Yes. High school back? Yeah. Further back? Luke and Rachel, probably. 20 years, maybe? High school. Yeah. yeah. So Chris, Chris uh, has pastored in the Portland area. Uh, most recently, him and his family moved to California. He's probably going to say all this, but I'm going to beat him to the punch. <laughs> Steel is thunder. That's good. That's good. Um, but they're, they've moved back uh, recently this summer. And um, Chris, uh, you know, I don't know if you're going to talk about what's next, trying to figure out what's next. Yeah. But uh, he's a great Bible teacher. He's a great author. He's got a few books out you may have heard of that are awesome. Um, and man, it is just a real blessing to have you come in and jump in on the Gospel of Mark. Thank you for giving your time to prep this yeah. and be here. We are honored to have you, man. Thank Thanks, you. man. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. It's good to be with you, uh, Door of Hope. I was telling Cam uh, that I think the last time I was in this room was like the time when y'all were one congregation and got this like 10 years ago. Um, so things have changed, but you know, it has, some things haven't changed, like seeing you guys here and seeing you worship Jesus. And like Cam said, I go way back with Luke and Rach. And so it's so, such a joy to just be able to... Um, to do ministry together. And uh, Luis, thank you for your story, man. 
can we give him another hand? That was just, that, we appreciate you, man. We honor you. It's really good. Um, and just, yeah, thinking as I was listening to that story, as I was listening to the scripture one more time, one more time through this week, I was, um, I was reminded that what we just read, you know, this, this narrative of Jesus dying, uh, it changed, Luis, your life. And it's changed your lives, uh, many of you here today. Some of you are here from a youth group across the nation, and you came here because of that story. Um, and some of you, you know, it's a miracle you're even here at 10 a.m. every Sunday. And the reason you're here 10 a.m. on Sunday is because of what we just read. And the reason you come every Sunday is because what we just read. And really, what I'm trying to say is there's only really gospel-oriented reasons that we should all be here right now. And you might not know that. You, you might be aware of that. But some of you, it might be your first or second time at church, and you might not know that. You might not know that the story we just read has changed societies. It's changed families. Uh, the act of the death of Jesus Christ has reoriented people's lives. And it's a reminder if you are back at church or you're in church and you're wondering, man, I'm feeling kind of weary. I'm feeling tired spiritually. To come back to this story is to come back to the heart of everything. Actually, the heart of the entire universe. The whole world and its creation and what you see all around you. It revolves around a love that is exposed in this passage today. It's such a rich passage. And reading it, I can't help but think about growing up in Catholic church. I grew up around the Catholic church. I was in Catholic education. I don't know if you grew up around that, but whenever I hear the story of the crucifixion, I am transported back to these old Catholic churches where Lent the season leading up to Easter, which we are in right now, the 40 days of preparation, Lent and the crucifixion, it played like a really, really big role in my upbringing. Some of us on the more Protestant side of Christianity, we have a distant relationship with Lent. We have a distant, we like are reminded Easter is coming like the week of. We're like, oh shoot, we should probably like hang out with our families this weekend or something. But in Catholic Church, you are very aware that Lent is happening. You are so aware that Easter is about to show up. And when I was a little boy growing up in my little Catholic school uniform, white collar t-shirt and like beige pants, like the most white, like the most washed out uh, outfit for me as a pale white guy, it was, uh, was not flattering. Um, but I was, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old and we'd go through these stations of the cross. The stations of the cross in Catholic churches are these images, usually paintings or engravings, and they'd line the churches. Most every Catholic church has them. And they'd line them. And these stations, you'd walk by each station to slowly walk you through the final hours of Jesus' life. It's meant to kind of slow you down. And what I remember about all of Lent and about Holy Week growing up around Catholic church was just how long it was. It was so long. It sent, it, there was no meat in the cafeterias because Catholics abstained from meat except for on Fridays and then we'd go ham on pepperoni pizza, like just go crazy that, that Friday. Man, they'd have like chicken tenders. Long morning prayers over the PA system and long walks through the stations of the cross. They'd take us children through the stations of the cross and every day during Holy Week, we would go through the stations of the cross in my Catholic school. This whole time, we're talking about wilderness and temptation and death and crucifixion and Jesus being stabbed with a spear, a crown of thorns, which we read about, him being spat upon, him being whipped. This is a lot 
for an eight-year-old to take in, you know? (laughs) But it really did shape me in a kind of way. You know, growing up, for all of the distance I have from the Catholic tradition now as I've become a pastor and I'm a Protestant on the other side of the Christian movement, it really did shape me in a particular way to make me not only comfortable with this story, but anchored in the story. Because that slow process, that slowing down I felt as a child, is actually what the gospel's trying to have us do right now. There's a pace that Mark has that he's trying to slow down. It changes my view of God because we kind of want a faith sometimes that's all resurrection. We kind of want a faith sometimes that's all in perpetual Sunday instead of Good Friday or Holy Saturday. I like what Russell Moore said in an op-ed in Christianity Today last year. He said, the resurrection slash ascension, it was not the undoing of the crucifixion. They were instead a continuation of what Jesus pronounced to be a triumph through defeat, a power through weakness. Beware of a Christianity that's selling you perpetual Sundays with no Fridays, all resurrection without death, all power without weakness. These distortions of the gospel, they take the cross and the crucifixion and they give us a risen body of Jesus with no scars. They give us a kind of reality of Jesus without his true humanity. And here, Mark, this gospel writer, he is not afraid to talk about the crucifixion. You heard the scripture reading. It was slow and agonizing. To fixate on the details and slow down should give us readers a little bit of pause and us listeners a little bit of pause. Why would he do this? Why tell us so many painful details about the Son of God's demise? Why tell us the, quote, whole battalion of soldiers gathered to mock him? Why tell us the cloak was purple? Why tell us that the crown was made of thorns? Why tell us many times, three times in fact, that he was mocked as the, quote, king of the Jews or king of Israel? Why tell us that he was struck with a reed, struck on the head, spat upon? Why tell us that his clothing was stolen? Why include the detail that the very people who were crucified with him, the other criminals, why tell us that they mocked him too? And why give us the name of a man who helped him carry the cross, Simon of Cyrene? Mark, the gospel you've been in for many, many months, uh, I'm sure you've been told it is a speedy gospel. Mark's favorite word is the word immediately. It appears 35 times in this book. 35 times in a book that has 16 chapters, he uses the word immediately. Because he's trying to speed up the pace. He, spoke to, he was writing to a Roman audience who, like you and me, we, loved a, we love a quickening plot. Earlier in this gospel, entire scenes of miracles, controversy, play out all in just four or six verses. Here, Mark takes 16 verses just to lead us to the death of Jesus and then another nine to describe his final breath. The ink spilled over the crucifixion is a considerable amount. And Mark spends so much time on Jesus' death, it is painful and long, but it is filled with with meaning. All the Gospels, all of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all slow down in the final week. Do you notice this? The Passion narratives, if you put all the Gospels together, all four Gospels, they account for one-fourth or one-third of the entire story of Jesus' 33 years. 
He lives 33 years. The entire narratives usually only take about three of those 33 years. And then a third to a quarter of the Gospels are just his final week. Mark is telling you and me to slow down at the stations of the cross, to walk patiently through them as you reflect on this death. This death means something. This is not just any death. This is not the execution of a common criminal. This is not the victimization of a random rabbi. There is something that is happening within this death that is like no other death. This death has meaning as it is reinterpreted in who is dying. The death has meaning because of who is dying. And only in slowing down might we understand. So today, I want to honor this text by doing exactly that with you. I do want to slow down a little bit. I want to look at this passage closely, but simultaneously, I want to avoid my academic inclination to explain this text to you. Explanation is not really the primary mode of a literary masterpiece. In fact, explanation can rip out the power. Explanation can actually destroy and empty some of what this is trying to do to you. And so, instead, perhaps, we might just slow down and stare at a few of the scenes we just read and look at them the way that I was looking at them as a child walking through those hallways of an old Catholic church. Ah, what's happening here? Staring in, at this one specific spot and then moving to another scene and seeing the dying Christ and say, what is going on here? And so, let's prepare accordingly. Would you just pause and close your eyes and let me just say a quick prayer as we walk through these scenes together. Maybe take a deep breath and just remind yourself that God's Holy Spirit is right here ready to speak. So Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask your spirit to speak to us. Help us notice what we would never notice had you not brought it to our attention. Man, help us just slow down. We all live such fast-paced lives. Help us just see what is it here that you want us to see. We trust you can do that in Christ's name. Amen. The first thing we might see in the light of this strange passage is simple. What you just read, what we just read together, it actually happened. It actually happened. In the very beginning of the text, it talks about the soldiers that are entering, quote, inside the palace of the governor's headquarters, and the whole battalion is gathered there. We have to recognize that Mark is very interested in telling us a true story, a factual account of a death. Without getting into Christianity's remarkable historicity, which it does have, it has incredible historical accounts, and its, its history is so undergirded by good facts and good history, without getting into all of that, we do need to reckon with the fact that we are not reading a tall tale. We are not reading a fable or a myth. We are reading a historical account that is, quote, in the time of Caesar, of a man who was, quote, crucified under Pontius Pilate, as the early creeds say. Mark mentions Pilate, his battalion, and even Simon of Cyrene, who he says is the father of Alexander and Rufus, to underscore that we are in an actual moment in history, in time. 
The Roman Empire developed crucifixion as a means of torture and execution that they practiced on literally thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of individuals. In all of Rome's detailed historical data, we know not one name except for this one. Hundreds of thousands of people were crucified under Roman rule. You know the name of one of them. Of all of their important data, which you can go to Rome, I've been privileged to go there and see many important data points of their history. One of the reasons they did this was they wanted to delete the crucified from history. So they never kept account of their names. They wanted to delete them and their families from all of existence because of the criminality that they uh, embodied. Of all the thousands crucified, there's only one story that is preserved, one that's celebrated in worship. It's, that's Jesus. Why? Well, because of some of the details hidden in here. The second scene that we might notice as we pass by through this scene is the scene of the royal images, the purple cloak, the crown of thorns, the hail king of the Jews that is set upon Jesus. Slowing down with the royal imagery directs us to also the simultaneous mocking that they're doing at Jesus. The wagging of heads, which is a hilarious way of talking about mockery. The reviling, the mockery. These are actually words we don't really use anymore, but words that certainly describe our culture. Mockery and reviling, those are the common, that's the common English dialect on the internet today, is it not? This is a common way that we talk to each other, but we don't use those words about how we talk. You see, to Jesus' killers, to the ones that were executing him, his bizarre kind of upside-down kingship and kingdom, it was coming to a climactic end right there. To his killers, they were like, this, it's over. The blessedness of the poor, the power through weakness, the forgiveness of the grave sins, gracious healing of the, uh, the ill and disabled, the servant form of leadership that Mark, uh, Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 10, it was all a joke to this battalion. It would never work. Power through weakness, the ability to forgive sins, it would never work. It was all a joke. It didn't work at that point in time to these killers. The soldiers take their final opportunity to put an exclamation point on the absurdity of Jesus' life. This is a king. This is someone who claims to have any kind of divine power. Mark's Roman audience, they might be right where we are as we come to the end of this gospel. There's no way this cross works. The way of Jesus ignores the way power operates in this world. It's deemed ineffective, unremarkable, and dumb. But the cross is supposed to have some sort of power in it, but these guards look at him and they go, there's no utilitarian purpose, there's no usefulness, there's no application. But there's an irony as they dress this king the way they're dressing him. What the killers don't know is that these moves they are making of crowning him with thorns and putting purple on him, these are actually the kinds of enthronement the triune God has always planned. We are not witnessing the victimization of a Middle Eastern rabbi. We are not to look at the story of the cross and say, oh, poor Jesus. We are actually witnessing the very way in which God chose to be crowned. What these mockers don't know is the Roman Empire would not last another six generation and Christianity would become billions of worshipers. You see, these mockers, they don't understand that they were actually crowning a king. It was just the crucified king, Jesus. 2,000 years from the moment we read, we do not know Jesus because of Caesar. We know about Caesar because of Jesus. You see, 
The great chapter titles of the Roman books are getting flipped over. They thought Jesus would be a footnote. But now, Pilate is the footnote in Jesus' story today. You see, the great reversal of the kingdom of God is occurring in this very moment, which drives the irony even deeper. That this world today is more shaped by the Jesus story than by the Roman one. That actually more people know the name of Jesus than they do know the name of Pontius Pilate. And the very way in which his followers would become more mighty would not be through the gathering up of arms of political power. The way this movement would gain ground was through the very deaths of the martyrs in the earliest centuries. It would be by giving life and laying it down that power would be enthroned on the kingdom of God, not through power grabbing and politicking, all the ways that we think power would happen. You see, not only was the moment of Jesus' death confusing and upside down, but the message Jesus, his early followers carried had the same bizarre nature. The best meditative prophecy on this is done by one of the earliest followers of Jesus, Paul, the apostle. In 1 Corinthians, if you have a Bible, you're in Mark 15. Just go over to the right a little bit to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And let me read to you one of my favorite meditations on the gospel. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. The message of the cross, not just the moment we read about, the moment we read about in Mark, but the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. You see, it's foolishness to the, to the, to the mockers. They think it's ridiculous that this man is dying. But when we look back on it, as followers, we see his power at work when he's dying. We don't have to wait for the resurrection to see his power. We see in him taking the stripes, the very power of God. For it's written, and here he quotes Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise, Paul says? Where's the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Hasn't God proven Rome to be a foolish enterprise? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews, one religious group, they demand signs. And the Greeks, they seek wisdom. But we, we preach Mark 15. We preach a man dying, Christ crucified, a stumbling block. You know, that word in the Greek is scandalon, which is scan like a scandal. It's a scandal to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles, non-Jews. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Skip to verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things, the man on his knees being beaten and struck. He chose those things to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Why, verse 29? So that no one can boast. Which might lead us to a third place on our stop along the way of this masterful and horrific and humbling story. It's that man who helps Jesus carry his cross. 
jumping back to Mark 15, it says they compelled a passerbyer, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and they had him carry his cross. This is one verse, but I always remember this because when I was a kid in the Catholic Church, it was one station. One station is dedicated to this man. A station of the cross where you're supposed to stop and consider that Jesus needed help. Now, he didn't ask for help, but they compelled someone to help him, and it seems as though he accepted the help. This man, Simon, had one cool detail here, is that he's named the father of Alexander and Rufus because Mark is telling it, this gospel was written early enough, the dating of it is written so early, it's the earliest gospel we have, we know Mark is just saying, if you want to know this man, go see him. And if he has died since I wrote this, go visit his children. He'll tell you about Jesus. He'll tell you about the cross. He'll tell you about the crucifixion. And he helped carry, him, carry this cross. And remember what Paul said about the cross. We preach Christ crucified. Why? So that no one can boast. Simon is a reminder that we as Christians... This is our role as Christians, to participate in cross-bearing. That we are much like Simon, carrying our own crosses, not to show off how godly we are, but in order to participate in the story of Jesus Christ. All of us have burdens, pains that we bear in this life that become radically reinterpreted in this story of the gospel. Our crosses are his too. We pick up our various crosses only to realize the participation that we have with this story. That we actually are participating in solidarity with Jesus, or rather, he with us. We no longer see pain as meaningless, burdens as purposeless, but as a way in which we can now fellowship with the living God. You see, suffering before I knew Jesus, I didn't know how to make meaning of it. How do you make meaning of the hard things that you go through? The cross gives us one way in which suffering has meaning, which is that you can take one step closer to Jesus. You notice they compelled a passerby, or he was passing by, Simon of Cyrene. In order to take a step closer to Jesus, he had to take a step closer to carrying that cross. Much it is with you and me. One of the ways that we come to know this Jesus is not through our own victories and our own intellectual ascents to spiritual knowledge. We come to Jesus by cross-bearing. We come to know Christ a little bit more when we shoulder the difficult things in life and like Simon of Cyrene, are compelled as a passerby. Some of you today, you're passing by. You've been to church a handful of times. You're on a youth group trip. You don't know why you're here. But you're going through pain and the pain that you're going through has to have a place to put it. You've got to have a place to understand it. You know, secular life has no answers for pain other than numbing it, moving it away, kind of brushing it off, making light of it, or creating yourself a victim and puffing yourself up in pride. Oh, I've had such a hard life. I've had so many hard things that you would never understand me and pushing people away. Those are the secular options for pain. And yet, here the gospel gives us a whole other thing. What if your pain was a way in which you could take one step forward to shouldering a cross with Jesus, participating in his gospel story? Simon of Cyrene participated in this story. He's named for a reason. There aren't a lot of names of people in these gospels, and yet we know his. Your diagnosis, your divorce, 
the death or betrayal of a family member or friend, all of our pain and experiences become radically reinterpreted, reinterpreted in the light of the passion of Jesus Christ. It's one major reason any of us actually became Christians in the first place. I don't know about you, right? But I am not a Christian because it offers me some kind of rich life or a set of good ideas or some spiritual wisdom by which I could live a better life. It offers some of those things, but I am primarily a Christian because I found camaraderie in Jesus, the man who was God, who suffered. And because he suffered, I, kn I can know him and he knows me. It makes me think about Peter, one of his early followers. He wrote this, Jesus, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Have you ever paused on that verse for a little bit? He doesn't say by his victory you've been healed by his resurrection you've been healed it's in the death that the salvation is found it's actually in the death that we can even know the resurrection that is to come he himself bore our sins so it goes actually beyond just oh jesus suffered and i suffered too so we have some camaraderie there actually if you read this verse carefully you'll see that the very wickedness that you have felt the trauma that you've experienced the diagnosis the disease that context of sin was actually inside the very being of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. And he died for it. It's the wounds of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, that salvation has come. We understand the resurrection power of Jesus when we are suddenly struck with the realization that it was in fact Jesus himself, God himself, who carried sin in his body, who bore it for us in time where things are unbearable for us, we realize he bore it. The things that are unbearable for us are bearable on the cross of Jesus. So taking a step into Jesus and into the suffering of Jesus is not just simple camaraderie. It actually is salvation. The cross is salvation. Foolish for many, but salvation for the rest. What was stupid and mocking for the crowds, it's life-saving for those who believe. Well, we have so many places to stop, but... Time permits only maybe one last place to linger. You know, at the end of this passage, as he's being mocked, one of his mockers in verse 31, the chief priests and the scribes, these are the religious leaders. These are the people that know their Bibles, that sang worship songs. It's easy to look at them and look down on them. These people have probably had a incredibly pure motives. The chief priests and the scribes, I think I could argue, would know the scriptures better than you and me combined. Somehow they sat next to the cross and mocked it. See, the whole time through this story, you might have excused yourself from those that reviled Jesus, saying, well, I'm a Christian. So I would never. I'm a Christian, so I'm, I'm actually more like Simon. I'm more like someone who would, be, who would have been helpful during this time. Someone who came close to Jesus. But this final place to linger is probably the hardest place to linger, which is to notice that we are among the mockers. That actually, on our, even on our best days, 
We want to stand back from Christianity as a kind of religious idea that we can pick apart. We want to deconstruct it. We want to pull it apart. We want to make up all sorts of reasons why not to believe it because it seems somewhat unbelievable. His mockers say this, he saved others. Can he not save himself? Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come now down from the cross that we may see and believe. The last scene convicts me of the times where I have wanted to have God prove himself to me. Won't you do the thing that you've always said you would do? Won't you be the kind of God I've always imagined you to be? Why aren't you acting now? Why aren't you speaking today? Why aren't you making yourself clear in this moment? We have to linger here because here is the heart of the gospel. It doesn't just save criminals and battalion leaders who strike Jesus. It saves the religious people standing by and critiquing it. That actually Jesus died for us too. That the gospel is preached both to the world in Rome and to the scribes and the Pharisees. That this message, this hanging man on a cross, is not just given to people on the outside of the story, but those on the inside, who can't see it for what it is. I told you that the mockers, they did their best to elaborate the irony of this moment, dress him up in purple, put a crown of thorns on him, call him a king, all of that to completely miss that the irony was on them all along. He saved himself. Can he not save others? This is what the mockers miss. This is what I miss. That actually, by Jesus not saving himself, he saved us. By staying on the cross until death, he saved us from our death. When we move too quickly past the death of Jesus, we view the resurrection as this like gotcha moment. Ha, God wins, the rest are losers. God is vindicated in this kind of gospel narrative, right? God becomes the great vindicator. Oh, I, uh, Pilate was wrong and you know, uh, Caesar was wrong and the battalion members are wrong, but you know, Richard Hayes is a great New Testament scholar. He says this, do you notice when Jesus rises from the dead, he doesn't go back to Caesar. He doesn't go to Pilate. You'd think he would. Those were the people that allowed his execution. He doesn't go to the chief priests and the scribes. Why? Well, because Jesus is not interested in vindication. He's interested in salvation. A very different act. Because he's not interested in proving himself to be right. He's interested in laying him, his life down. If we think the gospel is about a big gotcha moment where there are winners and losers, we, friends, will become the losers will miss the very reality of the gospel. This is a real, actual, and total death of the Son of God. God did not save himself, he gave himself. All of him, he bled, he died, his heart ceased beating, his body turned cold, he was truly laid to rest. He came into this world wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, the famous Christmas story. Well, he closes his story wrapped in linens and lying in a borrowed grave. The mockers, as mockers usually are, they are both radically right and radically wrong. You and I stand in that crowd that is radically right and radically wrong. Yes, he did not save himself, but he could have. 
And why didn't he? Why did he not save himself? Because this was not his mission. I told you we're not reading a story of a victim. Jesus came with a mission. The mission, again, was not vindication. See, I'm this great scene, but it was, uh, I'm this great king, but it was a salvation act. You are my beloved. I've come here to demonstrate to you who I am. He didn't come for himself, friends. He came for us. And something happens when we stare at the cross. Suddenly the pride and the intellectual problems we have with the faith have their opportunity to be silenced. Not because they don't matter, but because something needs to happen before the questions and the doubts. Humility. That actually, so long as you are critiquing from a place of pride, you will never really enter the story of the gospel. So the questions should come. The discussions on the fine issues of Christianity, they need to come. Good homework needs to be done. Good and helpful discussion about doctrine needs to happen. But it must happen at the foot of the cross. It must happen with, at first, a kind of arrest that is given our hearts when we stare upon the body of Jesus. You see, we want a God who would vindicate and prove himself, show up for us in the way and manner in which and the timing of our choosing. We want a God we can prove through the means by which we can understand. And so at the foot of the cross, both the world and the church can be stood corrected. We are the mockers. And we all look at the foot of the cross now and have the opportunity to repent. Instead of explaining it, we can witness it. Christ alone hangs crucified in the air, above the world, above the church, high and lifted up, not as a victim, but as a victor. This was his mission. He says in John 10, 17, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. Notice the personal possession of this. Verse 18, no one takes my life from me but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my, fathers, my father. We mockers are now silenced before this mystery. Jesus has chosen crucifixion before the foundations of the world. He chose to be mocked. He chose to submit himself to death. The death of the Son of God will not be explained. It will be revered. And that's what we do when we enter communion. We come to worship and we come to the table not to pick apart this gospel story, but to submit to it. This is our story that we've been given for the explanation of the entire universe. And this story we come humbly before. And through bread and through the cup, we come to submit ourselves to it. And so friends, would you close your eyes and let me pray for you as we enter communion together.